Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about breastfeeding challenges with a nurse and experienced lactation consultant who offers some advice. If everything looks good, but it's still not working, the breastfeeding medicine program will essentially find out what it is that we need to address. Then we'll hear about a surgical repair for people who are born with a sunken chest. Any patients noticing redness or drainage from the incisions, you know, would want to report that to their surgeons immediately afterwards. And we'll talk with a hand surgeon about some of the most common causes of and treatments for hand pain. A common theme with these uh, types of issues is that they can be treated conservatively using anti-inflammatory medications, cortisone injections, and things of that nature. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about a surgical repair for people born with a sunken chest. Then we'll talk about the most common causes of and treatments for hand pain. But first, a lactation specialist offers advice about breastfeeding. Many aspects of breastfeeding come naturally to mother and baby, but there can be challenges. New moms may benefit from seeing a lactation consultant or a specialist in breastfeeding medicine, a program that's available at Upstate Medical University. Here to discuss this program is Michelle Dwyer, a nurse and an international board-certified lactation consultant. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Amber. I'm happy to be here. Now tell us what's involved in becoming internationally board certified. You're, were you a nurse first? Yes, a registered nurse. Um, there's a lot of money involved uh, to become licensed, but it is actually one of the hardest tests I've ever taken. Um, there's a lot of studying. There's a lot of um, SERPs involved. Um, and then when you sit down to take the test, it's an all-day affair. But I'm happy to say that I did obtain my license, and so now I'm licensed in a specialty that I absolutely love. Okay, well, great. So let's talk about how the breastfeeding medicine program works at Upstate. We are very excited to be here. Um, it is physician-led. I work with Dr. Charlam. She's kind of, we're each other's right-hand man. And she's a... Um uh, obstetrician gynecologist or she uh, specializes in breast care um, okay. conditions of the breast um, so what I love about working there with her is that I essentially will bring moms in with breastfeeding issues that they have determined that they have if it gets beyond my scope of practice I have physicians available to me I have Dr. Charlam I have nurse practitioners um, so a mom does not have to pick up her baby, go to another facility. If I say, you know, you need a physician's care, we're kind of one-stop shopping. Now, I is this say. only for um, mothers who deliver at Upstate? Not at all. That is one of the um, facets of our um, breastfeeding medicine program that I love is that anyone can come 
to seek assistance. And can self-refer. They don't have to go through. They, can, they do not have to be referred by their physician at all. And many times I will receive phone calls from mothers that they have just kind of Googled and came up with our number, which I'm very, very happy about. And there is, uh, I call it a warm line, where I pick up the phone and they will tell me what is going on. And I essentially triage. Can I help you? Can you come in here? Do you need to come in? Sometimes I can talk them through it over the phone, which Mm. is wonderful because they do have a newborn um, that makes it hard for them to get out of the home. So. And the the newborn, the baby, comes to the appointment if, yes. if you need an appointment, right? So. Yes, yes. It's essential that we have the baby okay. come so that we can see how the baby is nursing at the breast. And that's one of the favorite parts of my job. <laughs> so tell me, what are some of the specific reasons a breastfeeding mother may seek your services? One of the main um, things that happen with a breastfeeding mom is pain. Um, we all think that it's natural for a baby to just be shot out of the womb, go to the breast, and the baby will essentially do that. The mom may not feel pain right off the bat because she just delivered a baby. So we have all of these um, happy things going on in our body, so we don't really feel if something's uncomfortable. After two or three days with the baby latching the wrong way, we have skin breakdown and we have a mother who is dreading her baby coming to breast. And so that's when I hope they pick up the phone and call for help because that is probably the main problem that I I deal with, just healing the tissue and getting the baby back to breast. And so that can be something that can be fixed. Absolutely, it can be something that can be fixed. Uh, We we determine why there is damage to the breast um, with the baby nursing. And essentially, it all comes down to the latch. If If you get a comfortable latch, everything else falls into place. You don't want to dread your baby coming to breast. You want to enjoy that. So there may be ways that the mom is holding the baby that wouldn't be as, there'd be better ways to hold the baby. Yes, and I try not to get too technical. I essentially have a mom bring her baby to the breast. I see how she's doing it, and then I'll tweak it ever so slightly. Baby needs to open their mouth a little wider. Mom needs to have a little bit more support on her back. Very, very simple, simple things, because the beauty of a newborn is they will find that breast. They will find a way to survive, and they'll do it in any way, shape, or form they can. I'm there to have it be the most comfortable um, experience for the mom. Is it usually a a one-time visit, or is there follow-up after? There is absolutely follow-up, and that is um, another benefit of the breastfeeding medicine program. Mom will come in to see me. Will determine the help that she needs. I call her within 24 hours because essentially they'll say to me, how am I going to do this if you're not there with me? Mm-hmm. And I have given them the tools and I tell them, go home, practice. I am there for you. You can come back. You can come back the next day if you need to. Usually that doesn't have to happen. You know, I can talk to them over the phone and um, it's the support. It's absolutely the support. Well, what are some ways that you tell um, families to create an environment that encourages breastfeeding at home? I first will say, and I'm probably old school, I will ask the mom, please put your phone down. Please put down that app that you've you've paid $1.99 for that's going to tell you how to breastfeed your baby. Don't Google anything. Look at your baby. Tune into your baby. Trust your instincts. And 
that would be the first thing I would do. Um, I don't want there to be a, um, an environment of someone told me to do this and I'm doing it and it's not working. Um, I heard that I had to do this and I'm trying to do it, but it's not working for me. Essentially, I want the family to take a breath. They have created a new life. There's a new little human in your home. It's going to upset the apple cart just because um, you brought this baby into the world. You're going to do fine. I leave mothers with two things. You have to love your baby, which is already being done, and you have to feed your baby. Let's not complicate them. We'll get it done in some way, shape, or form. Just take a breath. Does it help to have a certain um, chair to sit in to breastfeed or a certain routine or... The one thing, I do say get a comfortable chair or nurse on the couch if your couch is the most comfortable place in your home. Go to where you're happy. Go to the place where it's peaceful for you, where it's quiet. Have some snacks next to your chair. Crackers, cheese. Um, You don't have to drink gallons of water, gallons of milk. That's a myth. You have to keep yourself hydrated. Um, There's no have-tos with breastfeeding. There's just have yourself be comfortable. Tune into your baby, look at your baby, get that comfortable latch, and the rest usually will fall right into place for you. Okay. Um, now, what about dads? Are there things to, are there ways to involve dads? Absolutely. I love involving dads. Love it, love it, love it. There is nothing more satisfying and gratifying to see that father well up with tears when he sees that. His crying baby, who was having difficulty latching to the breast, his wife, who was feeling like a failure. You come in, you give them tools to get the baby to latch. You see the baby drinking. The mother starts to relax. She starts to smile. The dad will just, he is probably happier than everybody in the room because his baby's being fed. His wife is happy. Essentially, he can just kind of come down a notch because dads want to fix everything. They want to, you know, my wife's upset. We've got to fix this right now. And they're doing essentially what husbands and support uh, people do. Um, So, yes, I involve the dads because he will be there when she goes home. And so I show him what it is I'm doing. I've had dads take pictures um, because they don't want to forget once they get home. What did you do? And I, I was like, you go ahead, take your pictures. But I really, again, I want you to go back to what feels right to you, you know, they, so that role of support person, it sounds like it's pretty crucial to have. It is. Um, I really hone in on the, the moms who have no support. Um, we do have that population. And it's incredibly hard to sustain life for this new newborn and to live a difficult life, too, you know, with no support. So I really um, make sure that they know that I'm there for them once they leave. What's the current thinking on how long a mother should breastfeed? We would like them to breastfeed for a year. Um, it, it is recommended that they breastfeed for a year. Two years is like my perfect world, and I would love it if moms breastfed, if they're going to breastfeed until their baby goes to uh, preschool or kindergarten. There is no rule. There is no law. Um, if you can do a year, that's wonderful. We have many working mothers, the population, moms have to go back to work. So they deserve a medal um, for continuing to 
give their baby breast milk once they return to work because they're separated from the baby. But we have that's why I'm there. I will set them up to make sure they pump. We go through milk storage. You can continue to breastfeed your baby or give your baby breast milk when you return back to work because moms are going back to work in six to eight weeks, 12 weeks if we're lucky. Um, so if you can get through that year, and that's one of the things I will have moms call me and say, I made it. I made it to that year. And that's a wonderful thing. They're very, very happy. Now, on the other side, do you ha- are there moms that don't want anything to do with breastfeeding? Absolutely, they are. And um, my job is to just provide education. I give mothers information, and it's absolutely, ultimately, their decision how they're going to feed their baby. Um, I know they love their baby. They're going to do what is right for their family. And I'm a wonderful resource for that, too, because mothers will go through engorgement if they're not breastfeeding. Milk will come into those breasts. So I essentially will help them how to care for those breasts because it is part of their body and we don't want them to run into trouble. So I'm a resource for that. Um, They don't necessarily have to be breastfeeding to talk to me. I don't want them to feel that they have to be. Okay. Well, that brings me to the question of um, lactation counseling is Mm -hmm. part of breastfeeding medicine, but Mm -hmm. are there other things that breastfeeding medicine offers? Um, assessment, um, is a big portion of our practice. Um, I'll have moms come in that physically can't breastfeed for a number of reasons. There could be hormonal reasons. There could be physically though, the, um, their anatomy, um, milk supply, you know, they want to breastfeed, they're not able to produce any milk. So we go beyond. Um, it's one thing to get a baby to breast, but um, we need to have a milk supply. We need to have a baby who has a um, oral cavity, the mouth cavity, which is essentially working the right way. So not to get too technical, but if everything looks good, but it's still not working, the breastfeeding medicine program will essentially find out what it is that we need to address and set up a plan of action to see if we can resolve the issues for the mom. So there, you mentioned hormonal reasons. There may mm-hmm. be some medications that are absolutely, needed? Absolutely, absolutely. Thyroid is a big, um, uh, you know, issue if it's not functioning properly. Um, everything has to essentially be in sync in the mother's body physically. And things can get out of whack, but that's what we are good at at the Breastfeeding Medicine Program. We'll find out what it is so that we can help you. Now, I'm not sure whether Central New York has anything like this, but I've seen um, breast milk cooperatives Mm -hmm. online. Yes. Um, You can get donor breast milk. um, And the breast milk cooperative... um, I believe is also part of the CNY Breastfeeding Connection, which is um, Breastfeeding Medicine Program is actually part of that. CNY Breastfeeding Connection. Yes, okay. and it's a community um, group of people, professionals, lactation consultants, WIC, the health department, doctors, pediatricians. We all get together uh, once a month, and we put our heads together what are the resources that we can offer our families to help them with their breastfeeding goals? And if it's a donor milk that a mom needs, we have resources um, that we can send them to. There's a milk bank in Boston, and like I, I believe there's one in the Midwest. Um, if a mom wants her baby to get breast milk, 
there are a lot of smart professionals and lay people in the community that will help her do that. So um, what you brought up, the uh, Breast Milk Coalition, yes, and the CNY Breastfeeding Connection, these are community resources that you can get after with a phone call, and we will connect you with someone that will help you with your goals. Oh, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Lots, of, lots of options, it seems like. There's a lot, there are a lot of options and a lot of people um, to, to support families in the community. Well, thank you so much for this information. My guest has been Upstate Lactation Consultant Michelle Dwyer. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, how sunken chests can be repaired through surgery. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The medical term is pectus excavatum. It's a birth deformity in which a person's breastbone is sunken into his or her chest. Surgery can correct this condition, and Upstate now has a surgeon who offers this corrective procedure. Dr. Jason Wallen, the Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate, is here with me to talk about it. Welcome. Thank you. So do we know what causes this condition or why it's more common in boys than girls? Uh, we don't know exactly what causes it. We do presume that there's some genetic link to it because of the predilection for boys versus girls. And there is uh, a tendency for uh, increased incidence in siblings, but uh, we've never identified any particular gene or environmental factors that can lead to it. So it, it tends to run in families or you see it in... It's not so much families in such a way that it's inherited, but you do see an increased uh, incidence in in siblings. Siblings. So a brother or sister is more likely to have it, um, but not necessarily in a parent or a child. Um, How common is it? Uh, it's pretty uncommon. Uh, it is the most one of the most common uh, heritable defects, um, but it's about one to five hundred or one to a thousand births. Okay. Now, uh, does this deformity affect the heart and the lungs that are right beneath the breastbone? The most common complaint for patients with pectus excavatum is difficulty breathing, but it's not felt to be due to compression of the lungs as much as it is from compression of the heart. And as we all know, uh, heart trouble can cause people to have the symptom of difficulty breathing. Okay. So that's uh, one of the symptoms someone might have from this is difficulty breathing? It's, it's, it tends to be a, a difficulty breathing with exertion. So people will notice it as a decreased exercise tolerance. So, you know, they run and, you know, when we, when we run or exercise, we often get uh, shorter breath after uh, we've reached our maximum capacity. And uh, what these kids and young adults typically notice is that they're kind of behind the pack when it comes to what they can accomplish. So it would um, tend to impact their activity or their ability to be active. Yes. It could be. Um, And what about uh, self-consciousness? Would this affect? 
No, it's it's a very common complaint. Uh, kids, especially boys, tend to be self-conscious in the uh, when they're in the locker room. This is usually a much bigger problem in adolescence when uh, when kids are first exposing themselves to their peers. Uh, younger kids uh, tend to be much less self-conscious about it, and it tends to be more of the parents. Um, a lot of uh, people come to seek medical attention because of the cosmetics and. Uh, and even some women uh, actually undergo breast augmentation as opposed to repair of the actual deformity uh, to mitigate the cosmetic uh, problems of it rather than go through the chest wall reconstruction. Well, I want to talk about um, how that chest wall reconstruction is done. Um, but first of all, if, if a person's born with this indentation, is it going to stay that way or is it going to change or get better or worse over time? They don't typically get better over time. It's, uh, it's not something that uh, you grow out of. And so uh, they don't generally worsen either, um, but uh, particularly if it's pronounced, uh, you know, you can expect that you're going to notice that uh, for life. You know, more subtle defects as, uh, as people grow older and they become, sometimes they get, uh, get put on a little bit of weight, uh, or as women uh, mature and develop uh, breasts, then it can be less pronounced. Uh, but it's not really the defect itself, it's just that it's hidden by other anatomical features. So because of that, do you need to wait till after puberty to do any surgical correction? Or is there a prime time to do the surgery? Uh, there's not really from a medical perspective. Uh, there has been a shift in later years to doing more of these corrections in adolescence. Um, but there's no clear uh, reason for that. Um, when, uh, in regards to the puberty question, when, when doing the surgery on females, you need to be a little bit more careful about where your incisions go so that you don't interfere with breast development. Um, uh, in uh, in a prepubescent female and in a uh, in, in a woman who already has breasts, uh, incisions that are placed inappropriately can cause scarring uh, in the mm -hmm. breast tissue, which can re uh, result in a deformity in the long term. So, just something to be careful of. So, talk me through how this surgery is done. So it's almost always uh, a minimally invasive repair. Uh, we utilize a procedure uh, called the NUS procedure, which involves placing a bar across the chest underneath the sternum to lift it up and uh, cause it to be uh, nearly flat or completely flat uh, as we would expect it to be. Um, it involves making two small incisions, one on either side of the rib cage, uh, to allow the bar to be inserted and passed across in between the breastbone and the heart. And uh, the bar provides the structural support to push the sternum forward and, uh, and flatten it out. And that's left in, t in place uh, for generally between two to three years. Uh, to allow the bone and the cartilage to remodel in, uh, and, and, and get its own structural support in what we would consider a normal anatomic configuration. So you don't have to cut through the breastbone itself, but you cut the ribs to get access to underneath? No, we, it actually goes between the between ribs. Between the ribs. Oh, yep. cool. And so uh, the only uh, bone uh, surgery that actually uh, gets done is an act actually a new modification of the procedure to make the bar more stable is we make two small holes in the sternum uh, to pass sutures through to secure the bar to the underside of the sternum. One of the complications 
dreaded complications of the operation in the long term is that the bar can shift and and potentially need to be replaced. And so uh, it's been found that placing these uh, sutures through the bone really is quite a reliable way to keep the bar in position and avoid those complications. Kind of anchors it where it has to stay. Yep. So what's the bar made of? So typically the bar is made out of stainless steel. Um, which is the most common uh, material used. Uh, we do test patients for metal allergies uh, because uh, there's up to 14% of patients can have allergies to some of the uh, metals that are uh, that make up stainless steel, and that can be a, a cause for wound problems after the surgery. That can be quite frustrating. And those patients who are identified with metal allergies, uh, we place titanium bars. Oh, titanium. So... Um do they have to does does the body accept this sort of like foreign material being in it so yeah the nobody really rejects quote unquote metal um, but uh, the stainless steel uh, allergies or the metal allergies were a common cause for that myth. And uh, really what it is is just the body uh, noticing that these things are foreign and uh, and trying to attack it. Um, and so you get rashes and, and what appear to be wound infections from that. Um, with a titanium bar, then we don't see any of those problems because uh, it's much more inert. Uh, the problem with titanium is it's much, much more expensive. So we we don't use it routinely. Only unless someone needs it. That's of right. Allergies. So, um, is this? Did this? Was this additional training that you took to? to do this or is this part of becoming a chest surgeon you learn how to do this it is part of becoming a chest surgeon Um, as I mentioned there's already been you know some updates to the technique and so uh, Dr. Nuss himself who invented the procedure uh, does give a course annually uh, where uh, a number of his protégés come together to teach the new techniques they call it the advanced course and uh, it's a two day course uh, which uh, people who are involved in this type of surgery often will go every few years just to make sure that they're providing the latest version uh, with all of the latest tricks and improvements. Um, How long does the surgery take? Surgery takes uh, usually about two hours to do. Okay. And is the person... um hospitalized after? It's not an in-and-out procedure. They're, they stay in the hospital after? No, it is. Uh, it, it's uh, it's definitely a hospital procedure. The uh, typical hospital stay ranges from three to four days. And uh, we it, it is the reason that people stay in the hospital is mostly because there is some soreness associated with popping the, uh, the sternum and deforming that bone. And so uh, we utilize a number of different pain medications to try and make sure the patient is comfortable in the short term. And, uh, and we need to do those things in the hospital. Well, I was going to ask you what recovery is like, but it sounds like there's some pain control involved. Yeah, people are sore for a few weeks after the operation. It's much, much better than when it was an open procedure, but uh, people are definitely noticing the difference for uh, for four to six weeks after surgery. Um, is there physical therapy that you have to do afterward? or? No. Uh, the patients are up and around without any difficulty afterwards, and there's no exercises that really help. It's just important to get up, get out of bed, move around, and get back into your life as, as quickly as possible. And that's one of the reasons we, we try to achieve a good level of pain control so patients patients can return to normal activity quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, typically there's a, a, a four- to six-week period where you want to avoid uh, strenuous physical activity, you know, for adolescent you know, kids, we want to worry about impact sports, particularly because um, we don't want the bar getting dislodged. 
So after that four to six weeks, um, after they're recovered, can they go back to contact sports? Yep. Okay, neat. Um, now, are there any side effects or anything to be aware of or to be on the lookout for after the surgery from the, the patient's point of view? The main thing we worry about are wound problems. Uh, wound infections are rare, um, but uh, patients, you know, if any patient's noticing redness or drainage from the incisions, you know, would want to report that to their surgeons immediately afterwards. And anytime pain gets worse, uh, would certainly be a concern. Like so we expect people to be sore after surgery. We expect that to get better each day, uh, much, much faster earlier on than later. Um, but anytime there's a change, uh, then, then that's something that's very important to let the doctor know about. Uh, is there anything that would disqualify a person from having this surgery? Not really. Uh, there are things that make the surgery more difficult. And uh, some patients have had uh, various types of corrections before. And so redo operations are, uh, are a little bit more hazardous than primary surgeries. And uh, the other uh, considerations are patients with connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome uh, or, or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where uh, there are some additional modifications to the operation to make it more successful. Uh, are important. For example, placing multiple bars as opposed to one or two, going as many as three, uh, can be important. Uh, and the last thing is uh, patients with scoliosis are, are uh, something to be wary of. Um, sometimes uh, scoliosis can be progressive, and and that can mod that can change the geometry uh, of the front of the chest as well as the back, and so having uh, a multidisciplinary approach with the spine surgeons to decide which of the deformities needs to be corrected first to make the second repair more successful is important. Wow, well, so this is where um, the chest is sort of sunken. Do you ever see it the opposite? Yeah, uh, it's a much more unusual deformity. That's called pectus carinatum, uh, where the, uh, the the sternum actually pops out, and uh, that's actually easier to repair uh, in that it doesn't require an operation these days. Uh, generally, patients uh, wear a custom-made support brace uh, to push the sternum back down as opposed to pop it back out, and uh, the same sort of remodeling takes place, and uh, it's uh, surprising a comfortable brace and uh, patients wear it most of the day for uh, for a few months and then less and less often as time goes on and usually within a year or so uh, they don't need to wear it at all and uh, provides a, a, a great improvement. Uh, the downside is uh, that because it's strictly a cosmetic problem uh, then patients uh, almost invariably have to pay out of pocket for those types of therapies. Wow and and the uh, the one that we talked about with the sunken chest that's a medical situation. That's it is medical as long as we can show that the heart has is suffering ill effects from the compression. So there is some preoperative testing that is required uh, by the insurance companies to demonstrate a medical necessity. Okay, neat. Well, thank you so much for the information. I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. My guest has been chest surgeon Jason Wallen, who's the Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay with us next, the most common causes of hand pain and what can be done about them on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The five most common causes of hand and wrist pain are carpal tunnel syndrome, trigger finger, tendinitis, arthritis, and fractures. Here to talk about each of these conditions is Dr. Michael Schreck. He's a hand and upper extremity surgeon and a clinical assistant professor of orthopedics at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. So let's start with um, carpal tunnel syndrome. I've heard that uh, a million adults in the U.S. are diagnosed each year. Yes, yes. So carpal tunnel syndrome is very, very common. Um, Again, one of the most common things we see in our clinics is hand surgeons. And so what carpal tunnel syndrome is, is it is a compression of the nerve at the wrist. The name of this nerve is the median nerve. Uh, So what happens is this compression of this nerve is what causes the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, which typically are numbness and tingling in the thumb, index, middle fingers, and part of the ring finger, as well as sometimes pain. And sometimes when the condition becomes more advanced, you end up having clumsiness uh, in the hand and fingers. So does it happen because of overuse? Are you using your hands too much or doing the wrong things with your hands that causes this? It's a very good question. Uh, So... We're not entirely sure why carpal tunnel syndrome occurs. There are certain things associated with it, including diabetes and other medical issues. Uh, As far as the whole overuse thing, you know, it can be associated with repetitive motions uh, with the hands and certain tasks that you repeat over and over again. Um, You know, the jury is still somewhat out regarding uh, the repetitive motion things, but certainly it is associated with carpal tunnel syndrome. Okay. So you, uh, symptoms would be some tingling. Mm-hmm. Um, what else would like lead a person to your office? With- okay. So, you know, typically the most common symptoms are numbness and tingling, again, in the thumb, index finger, long finger, as well as the uh, half of the ring finger. And additionally, people will also sometimes complain of pain. And the most common thing that you find is people will come to your office saying, you know, doc, my hand uh, is waking me up at night. I have to wake up and shake my hand out. You know, it just feels numb and tingly and hurts. And I wake up and shake it out and then I go back to sleep and I feel okay for a few more hours. And I wake up again and shake my hand out. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that would set off to you that maybe this is carpal tunnel. Are there uh, tests that you have to do to verify that that's what it is or is it? So, yes, yeah, so there are a few tests that we do just in our office, just clinical examination things that we do. Um, sometimes what we do is we tap on the wrist because that's where the nerve lives, just over the palmar aspect of the wrist. We'll tap there. Um, we'll also actually manually compress that area. Um, and oftentimes those uh, types of maneuvers will bring on the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. It'll recreate those symptoms that the patient has been having. And then you know that's what they've got. Yes, typically. And so then to take it one step further, there are also studies that we can perform that are known as nerve studies uh, that actually a neurologist performs in which you test the conduction of the nerve and that can tell us how healthy the nerve is and if in fact uh, the patient does have carpal tunnel syndrome. So is surgery the only treatment? So typically, uh, surgery is the only definitive treatment, meaning that there are other conservative things that you can try. 
You know, some people will try splints to wear at night to keep the wrists straight. Uh, what we find is that when you bend the wrist in certain ways, it can bring on these symptoms. So sometimes people will try night symptoms, or excuse me, try night splints. Um, additionally, sometimes uh, you can provide a steroid injection actually into the carpal tunnel, and that will alleviate symptoms for a period of time. But typically you need to have surgery uh, done in the form of releasing the carpal tunnel in order to completely resolve the symptoms. So once that carpal tunnel is released, is that um, a cure forever, or is there a chance this would develop back? That's a very good question. So it can recur. Um, typically, symptom recurrence is due to the carpal tunnel not being completely released at the time of the initial surgery. Um, that being said, you know, in very rare instances, you know, you do end up with a recurrence of symptoms, and the treatment for that is to undergo another release. Mm. Okay. Is recovery, how long does that take? Uh, so it depends upon which technique you use. So there are certain techniques uh, where you actually make a little incision in the palm uh, through which you release the carpal tunnel. And then there are also techniques in which you actually make an incision a little bit further back, actually in the wrist, and you use an endoscopic instrument with a blade on it to release the carpal tunnel. So typically, you know, recovery from the incision in the palm, you know, takes, you know, a couple weeks for that incision to heal uh, versus when you do the incision in the wrist and perform the endoscopic release, uh, that recovery time is typically maybe a week or so, a little bit, uh, you recover a little bit quicker from the endoscopic procedure. And then obviously, as far as the symptom recovery, that will take, you know, a variable amount of time depending on how damaged the nerve was. Mm. So the more damaged the nerve was, the longer it takes for the symptoms to resolve. Um, what I will say is typically the nighttime symptoms will go away very quickly, almost instantaneously, regardless of what technique you use. So if you're someone who's suffering with these symptoms, it sounds like it makes sense to have it looked at earlier rather than suffering with it for months or years. Sure. that's just going to make it longer to... Absolutely, okay. yeah. The, the longer it's been going on for, uh, typically the more diseased the nerve is, uh, so typically the longer it would take to recover um, after performing the surgery. So yeah, certainly um, it would be better to have this looked at earlier rather than later. Okay. Well, let's talk about trigger finger. Okay. Um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so trigger finger. Uh, so this is an entrapment of the tendons that flex the fingers. And so what it is, uh, for lack of a better term, is it is it is a mechanical impingement of the flexor tendons as they pass through these little tunnels through which the tendons glide. So is this in all five fingers or just the index finger? So it can occur in all five fingers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So does it impede your ability to, to bend? So it can. So it can both impede your ability to bend the finger as well as to straighten it. So typically what happens is, so for whatever reason, and again, the disease mechanism isn't entirely understood as far as why we develop it, but you develop a focal nodular swelling in the tendon. 
and therefore the tendon has difficulty gliding through this system of tunnels or pulleys as we refer to them. And so what happens is as the tendon tries to glide through the tunnel, it gets stuck. And so... So it's like it's catching on something? Exactly. Exactly. And so then there can be such swelling uh, such that the tendon actually cannot pass through the tunnel, so you have difficulty flexing the finger down. Or you can have such swelling that you're actually able to pass the tendon through the tunnel, but then you have difficulty straightening the finger. And so then as you try to straighten the finger, it pops open or triggers, hence trigger finger. That sounds like it'd be pretty debilitating if, you know. It certainly can be, yes. So how do you fix that? So uh, there are some more conservative measures as well as surgery. So typically a trigger finger will respond to a cortisone injection into the finger. And now we inject actually not specifically at the finger, but rather in the palm over a specific region where the tendon seems to be catching uh, in the tunnel. And so we provide a cortisone injection there. And typically, you know, around 70% of the time, it will get rid of the trigger finger. Um, In fact, I myself have had a trigger finger um, in my dominant hand, and I underwent a cortisone injection, and that has been curative. Uh, it, it was about a year uh, from the time I had the injection, and I'm you haven't symptom had to deal free. With it. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but it could be something that has to be fixed surgically. Absolutely. So, so the surgery that we do to fix this uh, involves making a little incision in the palm. Uh, over the uh, tunnel that the tendon is catching on, and we just release that tunnel. Oh, okay, great. Um, This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate hand and upper extremity surgeon, Michael Schreck. Um, And so now we want to talk about tendonitis. Um, So that is that inflammation. Mm -hmm. Itis means inflammation, but what is... uh, the tendon could be anywhere in the hand or? Yeah, so uh, tendonitis is, you know, kind of a continuum of what we refer to as an entrapment condition. So it's similar um, to trigger finger in that you end up with some sort of inflammation which causes swelling in the tendon and then these tendons, and it it can be anywhere in the hand or wrist, um, the tendons, again, end up having this mechanical impingement type um, uh, syndrome, if you will, as they try to glide through their sheath. Uh, and so there are a couple of uh, wrist uh, tendonitis syndromes that are particularly common, uh, one of them being what is known as de Quervain's disease. And so this uh, type of wrist tendonitis uh, affects primarily the thumb side of the wrist, and so typically these people will end up with symptoms of, you know, pain over that area of the wrist and pain with certain maneuvers such as twisting a doorknob or, you know, kind of what I refer to as almost, you know, a, a hammer strike wrist motion where hmm. you, you move your wrist uh, in that, you know, typical uh, maneuver that you would use to, you know, hammer a nail into a board or something. So when I hear about an inflammation, I think of ibuprofen. Does that not help in this situation? Yes, ibuprofen can be very helpful oh, it can. in uh, wrist tendonitis uh, syndromes. Okay, but at some point it may become a surgical issue? or Yeah, so it can. Um, so, 
You know, again, a common theme with these uh, types of issues is that they can be treated conservatively using anti-inflammatory medications, cortisone injections, and things of that nature. Also, bracing can be very helpful. Um, and then if those measures fail, then we talk about performing a surgery, again, in which we release the tendons from the sheath or tissue uh, that is constricting them. Okay. Now, is arthritis similar to tendonitis? So arthritis is a bit different. Um, so, you know, arthritis is, there are multiple varieties of arthritis. There are, are inflammatory types of arthritis. That's, you know, we think of rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. And then there's just plain old garden variety osteoarthritis. And we can, you know, kind of think of that as just, wear and tear over time. And so what arthritis does is it destroys the joint surfaces, uh, which are comprised of cartilage. So the joints like in the knuckle and, yep. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's something many of us will face as we get older. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, arthritis is quite common. Um, probably, you know, more common than we think of in the hand, you know, you can, uh, you can actually spot it just with your, the naked eye. You can look at someone's hands and see if they have, you know, focal swelling, particularly over the knuckles, things of that nature. That's an indication of arthritis. Now, particularly in the winter in Syracuse area, um, fractures of yes. the hand and wrist, probably, you probably see more of those in the yes, winter, right? Absolutely. Um, what's the typical course for someone who's fractured their wrist. Okay. So typically, well, so, you know, as you've alluded to, you know, when it's icy outside, people slip and fall and they fall onto their wrist and then they end up uh, fracturing the wrist. And so typically how we treat that is uh, the patient is, you know, usually brought into the emergency department because they've had an injury. And the first step in the treatment is to actually manipulate the wrist uh, back into its normal or anatomic position. That sounds painful. It is. Okay. Um, and so typically to control pain for that, uh, we will provide uh, medications, you know, through an IV uh, in order to lessen the pain. And we can also do an injection of numbing medicine actually directly into the wrist huh. as well to control with the pain of that particular manipulation maneuver. Okay. And so... What we do is we manipulate it back into its appropriate position, and then we apply a cast or a splint. Um, now, this may be the definitive treatment for certain patients. Typically, in younger patients, you know, kids and teens, this can be a definitive treatment. As we get a little bit older, though, um, we don't necessarily respond as well uh, to a manipulation and casting treatment. And so what we do is we follow serial x-rays in order to make sure that the bone has stayed appropriately aligned. Oh, and if it has not? If it has not, then the patient requires a surgery. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being here to talk about all of this. My guest has been hand and upper extremity surgeon Michael Schreck. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poems about identity can be exhilarating and powerful. Two poets in Volume 17 have described their identities in ways that contradict the stereotypes we so often see in the news. The first is by Pakistani-American writer and artist Saima Shamsi. Her poem creates a rich and complex portrait of a Muslim woman. Here is I, a Muslim woman. I, a Muslim woman, am a tree that bends but never breaks. I am flexible but stable, with roots that run deep and never die of thirst. My branches extend upward to the sky, while my seed reaches down into the earth. My hair covers and cascades like something between the cape of a superhero and the shroud of a monk. I live in a place where all of my identities come together and find solace in the spaces that overlap. I, a Muslim woman, am a river that floats above the sky. I am a black swan married with a white swan. My feathers are airy like the wind, and when one floats down from the sky as I take flight, it can break the pavement of the road where you stand. The feather falls back to earth below me with the greatest of ease, yet when it lands on the ground, its weight is as substantial as that of the cosmos. Next is physician Jenna Lee, a Vietnamese-American poet who has published two books of poetry, as well as fiction, essays, criticism, and translations. Listen to her poem, Sick Aunt. Mythic auntie, Bigfoot, who shares my father's blue bamboo blood, manticore, mild and gentle, who, when bashed with rifle butts, simply bowed and suffered the beating, Sphinx I've never seen, but have only heard of. It is easy loving an abstract concept, and throughout my life that is all you were, a far land and foreign. Just as other families sit at mealtimes, talking Jesus, talking the devil, talking angels, God, and bogeymen, mine talked only you and your illness. Over birthday cupcakes and Christmas drumsticks, we discussed you, struggled to understand you, analyzed obsessively why you walked off into the drizzle. We retraced your steps with our thoughts. With words, we painted mental pictures of where you wandered, incense foggy rooms in which soft-robed nuns extended you comfort, college greens, including the one where you met that most willful lover, the one you married and who now supports you, you having grown too sick to keep working. Father tells your story with shame. He's drawn back from the world for fear that a busybody might discover you are his secret unicorn, my soul sister. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll talk about skin care issues of importance to the elderly. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.